competition works in a dense urban environment. I think that that's one measurement of success. Welcome to episode 364 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, we have another interview Christopher recorded while at the Mountain Connect Broadband Conference in Colorado. He caught up with one of our returning guests, David Young. If you're a fan of the podcast, you will immediately associate David with Lincoln, Nebraska. But David is now working in Kansas City, Kansas. Christopher and David reviewed the years-long project in Lincoln that started with Conduit and has culminated in a citywide fiber-to-the-home network. David discusses how the community worked within the confines of one of the most restrictive state laws and some of the technical aspects of their Conduit deployment that led to where they are today. He also discusses their partnership with ISP Allo and their agreement. David talks about Lincoln's decision to pursue a public-private partnership and some of the considerations other communities should review as they look at various network models. David and Christopher spend some time reviewing some of the many benefits Lincoln has enjoyed due to the presence of the network. Now here's Christopher with David Young. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I did a little differently that time because... I'm a Mountain Connect, sitting across from a former, a former multiple guest, David Young. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, David. Hi, Chris. How are you? Uh, we're at Mountain Connect. Um, it's a wonderful event, and uh, David David graced us with his presence this year. So I found an excuse to shove a mic in your face. It was uh, very hard to <laughs> twisted my arm, really. The former um, the former rights of way director for Lincoln Fiber Infrastructure and right of way manager. Yes. Exactly what I said. Yes, yes, me too. Now, currently the Kansas City, Kansas Public Works Deputy Director. You've Correct. Um, received a promotion multiple times from people um, at, at dinner last night and myself. you got to love these long titles, really. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not one to, uh, to uh, I'm living in a glass house on, in that case. Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Maybe we can make there that was, longer. There was a time in which my title was Christopher Mitchell, the Director of the Telecommunications as Commons Initiative at the new rules project for the institute for local self-reliance in minneapolis minnesota <laughs> you be, you beat me <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason i changed it <laughs> so i want to i want to we've, we've talked several times i just times. call you chris by the way right yeah <laughs> it would be odd if you use that as a <laughs> every time you referenced me you've been on multiple times to talk about lincoln and in this even though you're in you're in kansas city uh kansas now um this is kind of a retrospective is what i wanted to talk to you about in sure. lincoln um because there's just a lot of really interesting stuff that has that happened there that you helped make happen and um and so let's start with the conduit um, remind us what exactly you did uh, in the ground in Lincoln. Uh, so it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people involved. It was a big team effort. That was the plural you. Yes, yeah, the royal <laughs> we. The royal yes. we. Um, so there were a lot of people involved in the project. Uh, the concept was uh, starting in the most dense uh, populated area. Uh, we put in conduit underneath all the arterial streets, uh, starting with a four, a single four-inch conduit. Later, moving to six inch and a quarter interducts. And uh, and sorry, let's just stop for a second. Sure. Interducts within that four-inch conduit. We actually went away from the four-inch conduit completely, and just did a what we would call a six-pack installation. Now, Lincoln does that bears, look like a six-pack? 
Eh, kind of. Has okay. six six conduits. <laughs> and, and no Coors Light label. Since <laughs> <laughs> we're in Colorado. And so uh, just to be, how much fiber could you put through one of those? Like a ton or? <sighs> Generally speaking, in an inch and a quarter conduit, uh, the fill ratio depends. There's a lot of variables here. Uh, if you're going to go up to an 864, then you need to go with a two-inch conduit or an inch and a half conduit. So uh, a lot. And that's per conduit, right? Right. So. So a is this model that you, a company comes along and says, hey, we'd like some space. So you give them a whole conduit or how did that all work? So generally speaking in Lincoln, yes. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So when you look at these conduit models, you really have to think about um, the location, the density of people. Uh, Lincoln, 300, almost 300,000 people. Uh, it's the state capital. There are a lot of different variables and the university uh, headquarters is there. So in looking at this uh, model, you needed to provide for carriers that were only interested in providing connectivity to government agencies, state agencies, carriers that were looking at uh, statewide connectivity, uh, state uh, carriers that were looking at just local and regional connectivity. So that's why we went with the uh, six-pack model and then allowed each carrier to put their own fiber in uh, to connect the dense areas of downtown. And then we took the revenue from that and expanded those systems on uh, arterial streets or main streets throughout the community. And that's when we partnered with uh, Allo to do fiber to the home uh, once the system was, was that far along. And so you would have a maximum of six entities you could lease conduit to in that model, right? Actually, you can lease more than six. It depends on how you structure the model. So one model is all in. So I get, uh, I'm a company that comes in. Let's just use, for example, level three. Uh, level three wants to lease a space in the system, in the entire system. So you guarantee them a space. Now, maybe you're, maybe a regional carrier comes to you and says, I only want to lease a couple of areas. You could lease to them on a linear foot model. So they only have certain spots in the system. Uh, or you could lease uh, under a per customer per month model and allow them to build in a non-guaranteed fashion anywhere in the system. The one thing that uh, about the conduit model in a dense urban environment, it lends itself to what cities do well. Pipe, manholes. Uh, construction and arterial rights of way, great. I mean, so for us to put in six conduits and have six carriers in that section, and then have another carrier come along, okay, we can put another three conduits in. That's not the end of the world. I mean, it, it lends it to what cities do very well. Let me ask this: uh, <laughs> for you to say that putting three in, I'm a little bit surprised that that's not a big deal. Because does that involve cutting up the road? What's the conduit under? Is it under the sidewalk and it's easier to get to? How did you do that? So in several areas, uh, the guidance that we would give or that I would give to other communities is look at the back edge of the right-of-way. So if you put it at the back edge of the right-of-way, generally uh, you are closest to the building, which is the lowest cost for the carrier to attach to the conduit and then connect to the building. Um, if you're on an arterial right-of-way, you're behind the sidewalk, uh, generally speaking, if you can. There's a lot of areas uh, and I, I always say this, it depends, right, on the specific location you're putting this in. If you're in downtown Boston, the, hmm. the right-of-way goes to the building edge, right? So you're still under sidewalk. Uh, but generally speaking, if you can put it under sidewalk and then put the boxes just outside of the path of the sidewalk, uh, that's the lowest cost uh, methodology for putting in a conduit system. Now, I want to make it clear that to some extent what you did in Lincoln is is remarkable and it's worked very well. But I feel like... My job is also to remind people that 
in part, you you were very limited in what you could do because the state wouldn't even let you lease dark fiber. The state has been very anti-municipal in its policies since 2005. We did not, in Lincoln, strive to change state law. We left the state law the way it was. Um, there are many con- that consider Nebraska's state law um, one of the most uh, restrictive on municipal broadband. You're sitting across from one of those people. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, uh, considering my audience, most of the people who listen to your right. uh, would, right. would, would, would recognize there's, that. There's probably not a single person so, who's steaming right now right. at our claim of um, that. But recently, uh, legislation has been proposed that would um, remove some of those barriers on dark fiber leasing. So in a perfect world, um, the city would put in fiber and just leave fiber out, right? Um, or perhaps both. I mean, maybe maybe one of the conduits has sure. municipal fiber that could right, be leased. Right, right, right. And, and in Lincoln, we did that. One mm-hmm. of the conduits always had municipal fiber in it, but we were restricted for what we could use that for. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're looking at a rural application or a smaller community application, uh, 50,000 and under, maybe the number depends, right, on the, on the kind of community, it would be much more cost-effective to just put in fiber and then lease out a variety of models of fiber. You could do traditional IRUs. You could do per-customer-per-month models. Uh, you could do uh, franchise models where they provide service to everybody at regulated rates. You could do a lot of things. Um, but having that basic infrastructure in, in a community with a larger, more dense population makes a lot of business sense. So you can put in conduit mm-hmm. and a carrier can put in their own fiber. In a smaller town or a rural setting, it's just not there. So being able to uh, size your conduit or your broadband infrastructure appropriate for your community is a big deal. Um, and then putting together the right model that attracts people to come in and use it. So you have a, a deal with Allo, which I actually think is a, is a remarkable partnership and is well worth um, people, anyone who's considering a partnership should look at what you've done. Um, but uh, one of the things some cities do require is that when Allo would expand conduit on areas that you had not built, that they would deed it back to the city. Uh, you don't do that, right? We don't. So, but let me be clear here because there is a little bit of a gray area. Any conduit that's installed on an arterial street in Lincoln, Nebraska, must meet the conduit system standard and is deeded back to the city. When it goes into the residential neighborhoods, because we did not have a footprint in the residential neighborhood, and we wanted to kind of be very careful about the model there to allow Allo to put in their conduit in the neighborhoods and for Allo to own that infrastructure. And the trade-off we made was some of the things that you find in the broadband franchise, um, which... When communities are looking at partnering with different entities, you have to be very careful, right? It's uh, some models like the, I think the Fort Morgan model is a really good model for Fort Morgan. So Allo owns the drop in the equipment. The city pays for the backbone. Great. That works great. You look at some of the other models where the city wants to own the entire thing and they want a private partner to come in and run. That's great, too. I think you have to be very careful. It's great to look at other communities for ideas, but coming in and saying, you know, this is what Nebraska got. We want that too. Um, you have to understand all the nuances um, that went into that decision and, and why that was uh, palatable to a company at that time. So as we go broader away from just Allo and, and look at what your conduit has enabled across the, uh, the community, what sort of cool things is the city of Lincoln doing that it wouldn't have if they'd hired some other person rather than you <laughs> and your brilliance. No, I mean, if, if the team that you worked with, if you, you guys... definitely have to strike all the last bit of that, <laughs> um, I am not that smart. Um, but the, the city's conduit has allowed them to do several things. 
Um, I think on many levels, you could measure the success of the project. One is the impact on the telecommunication market. So uh, after announcing the Allo project, uh, we were six years, five years into the broadband infrastructure project for Lincoln. Prices went down for residential service. Contracts for service went away. Uh, modem fees went away for a large part. Um, so uh, Windstream announced that they were going to stop selling copper and start converting all of their networks to fiber for green build areas. Um, Charter came in and upgraded their entire network and dropped their prices. So competition works in a dense urban environment. I think that that's one measurement of success. Um, is, it, me- is another measurement of success the uh, um, Nebraska Cornhuskers football team? Scott, <laughs> Scott Frost moved to Lincoln. I'm glad you brought that up because of the fiber project. I'm, I'm sure of it. He's never said that publicly. Um, <laughs> right, only, <but> <laughs> only privately when you're hanging out with him. <laughs> I do not know Scott Frost. <laughs> uh, he he uh, seems to be a great coach, so uh, excited to see that. I really hope he's not as good as you say. Uh, I know. I know <laughs> he's a know, Minnesota know. partisan. <laughs> if everyone else in the Big Ten is going to be that good, we're we're just struggling. So we need someone to, to be less good so we can be more good. That's how these things work. It is zero sum. Uh, a couple of the other things, uh, connecting all the traffic signals uh, enabled a project called Project Greenlight, uh, Greenlight Lincoln. Uh, a good friend of mine, Lonnie Berkland, the uh, Deputy Director of Public Works in mm-hmm. Lincoln, Nebraska. He... Uh, has a project where they're upgrading all of the signals and retiming all of the signals in the city, um, putting camera detection out there. It's an amazing, just the math that uh, the savings to the community, the average commuter by streamlining the system. It's, a, it's really impressive. Um, if anybody's interested in that, you can just Google search Greenlight Lincoln uh, and it will come up. And there's a lot of information that you can find out about that. And lastly, well, uh, before you go away from that, I yeah. was, in Minnesota, one of the things I've noticed is that you can tell upgraded traffic signals in part because they're the ones that have blinking yellow arrow signals, yes, yes, yes. which I think is one of the best inventions, which solves a problem, which is one of the worst inventions in the history of mankind, <laughs> the red arrow, <laughs> which drives me nuts. But it, it, one of the things that's nice is, is that you can... As new as people come up with new ideas of how to improve traffic signaling, now you have those signals on an IP address, right? You can just get right to them. You don't have to like send someone out in the field to reprogram a box or something like that. Well, you can dynamically change the timing. So beforehand, you're right. Somebody would have to go out and they would actually literally, the old analog systems, they would change the dial. And it's, it's timing in that an east-west uh, calculation for 30 seconds of green, you know, 10 seconds of yellow, whatever. Um, 10 seconds of yellow. You guys got interesting Well, we got to encourage that. Uh, Lonnie will probably call you and say everything I say is crazy about the timing portion of this. But what it allows for is time of day calculations for timing. So you can have a morning rush, an afternoon general timing, and then an evening rush. And those can have different timing patterns. Uh, with an analog system, a non-connected system, uh, you'd have to send somebody out there three times a day, and they would have to time every intersection in the corridor. Uh, with the new system, they can sit in the office. So, but it is a human that's doing it. Then uh, we're not today, right? That's what I was just thinking. Yes, yeah. I know where you're going with that. It's interesting. So, could you partner with somebody like IBM to study that? I think uh, Des Moines. I, I believe I recently read they were actually looking at uh, partnering to do some of that study. Um, there are different uh, pieces of software out there now that can provide you cell phone data where people are moving based on different times of the day. 
and I have yet to see anybody integrate that yet, and that that'll be interesting. Uh, but it, having the connectivity at the cabinet gives uh, the engineering department that flexibility to allow them to implement things like that. It effectively increases the capacity of the roads, it lowers congestion, but also lowers pollution then too, because cars oh, yes. are not idling as much. And Correct. So that's uh, a, it's a big deal. It is, it is. It's, uh, that's exciting stuff. Uh, the other thing, partnering with the university to uh, deploy the first test bed for wireless infrastructure in the Midwest. So uh, the next program, Nebraska Experimental Test Bed of Things. Uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. John Verin, uh, worked with the city to uh, select several locations in the community and put uh, advanced, I think, 6G, 7G research radios uh, connected to that same fiber infrastructure, uh, giving the, the university the ability to um, go out, utilize this infrastructure, and start testing in real-life scenarios these next-generation radios uh, and antennas. So it's very exciting to see what a gigabit network uh, can provide a city. One of the things that you and I have talked about is in the uh, the agreement that you struck with Verizon and perhaps with some of the others, I think, you get a port on the poles when they're putting up their small cells, when they replace a, a streetlight with, uh, with a, a pole that is both a streetlight and an antenna for them. Uh, are those ports starting to be utilized? So Verizon is just now deploying. They've been deploying for about a year and a half, um, and the connectivity is is getting to a point where they can actually the traffic department the city can actually connect those poles to the the backhaul network um, that concept actually if you look at the bdac uh, municipal model code is in there the broadband deployment advisory commission from yes the committee thank you from the that. fcc yes it that concept uh, was actually popular enough even with the industry that they included it in that uh, proposal so that whenever a new pole goes up, uh, having an antenna on top is great, but also having a port with fiber access middle of the pole for a security camera, a gunshot detection, a uh, air quality monitoring station. Having that connectivity there, uh, radar, not in a sense uh, radar for uh, catching speeders, more of radar for measuring traffic flow so you can inform the traffic signal half a mile down the road that it should be, you know, stay green a second longer to get this group of cars through. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, it is in the early stages, um, but the connectivity is there. It'll be very interesting to see uh, how Lincoln carries that forward in the near future. Here at Mountain Connect, one of the, the were you there for the keynote this morning from the future? Yes, yes. I yeah. thought he did a really good job. Yeah, very one of the things that I thought he is very correct. I mean, I, <laughs> I was making fun of the tireless cars, not just wireless cars, but yeah. tireless cars because of all the <laughs> tire stores are apparently going away with yeah. no more drivers. But um, boy, if you're not following my Twitter feed, you're really missing out, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things he talked about was sensors everywhere. And and it sounds like that's something that's um, coming to Lincoln faster than other places. So one of the things that uh, we did work with Allo on as part of the overall structure was a uh, concept uh, of public VLANs, uh, virtual local area networks. So if uh, Allo has service into your house and they have an IP address, they can also provide the city uh a network and an IP address over the same infrastructure. Uh, this has been used commonly to create secure private networks uh, across the United States. Banking institutions use them. Uh, what we were looking at 
uh, specifically in Lincoln, was some kind of basic concepts, having uh, the public schools, Lincoln Public Schools, have an SSID or a, a wireless address in uh, a home so a child could take home their uh, Chromebook uh, from the school and connect right into the network. Uh, we thought that would be a great use. We also thought the university having a research network that any university student living in Lincoln could connect into was a great idea. Uh, we were looking at from a uh, AMR, AMI, automatic meter reading, uh, automatic meter information system, uh, using that same network to deploy uh, LoRa uh, radios around the city. So if I could, if I can disambiguate, I, I will talk about this for hours, Chris. Anyway. No, 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 it's it's actually fascinating, but I want to make sure people have a sense of, of what's happening. So, so Allo has a fiber to a person's home, and they um, have a wireless access point, Correct. and that wireless access point, you know, says like Bob's wireless access point, but then it also says public school district or something like that. Not yet. That's the idea. Right. Right. So, so this is the, so this there's is some the engineering idea. that has to go in it, but. Uh, the agreements are there. The underlying technology is there. Um, it's really for Lincoln now to implement the public schools, the city, the university, and Allo together mm-hmm. to actually implement that technology. Right. So let's imagine Bob's on his wireless network, the same access point. His child, um, Betty, is is um, has a Chromebook from the schools. She's also on the wireless network. But they really can't even see each other because logically they're actually on different networks. She's on the school network and he's on his his own network. And uh, the child in this example, Betty, it would just look like she was connected to the school Wi-Fi network, to her equipment. She would know no different. Same filtering policies, same access to resources, same access to software, um, same tracking ability to, to look at, you know, did this person log in? Were they able to log in? What kind of quality connection did they have? Uh, all of that would be available and to the public school, it would just look like the, the child was connected into the, the public school's network. That's one of the most exciting things I see coming down the pipe with uh, that project is to be able to expand that and then have uh, people who are signed up for that service opt into it. So you may not have children, but you may decide just for a public good, I want to go ahead and turn it on. Mm-hmm. You know, wireless signals leak outside of homes all the time. And I think it would be very interesting to see uh the number of people connections, the time of those connections, uh, I think it'd be very interesting long term. Absolutely. So, but let's get back to the sensors. Uh, what's happening with with sensors? So, uh, Chicago has this project um, called the Array of Things. Oh. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I thought it, since you had mentioned earlier the the wastewater. Oh, runoff, I'm good. I'm gonna get. I was that. actually the, the massive yeah, yeah, underground yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 really, yeah. it's so, fascinating. I was attending a conference and I met the guys from Chicago working on this. Uh, it's like part of the Argonne National Labs and very interesting what they're doing. They're deploying sensors, like standard sensors around the city to look at noise and uh, air pollution, things like that, and aggregating that data. And they've allowed other cities to uh, basically, if you buy one of their pre-approved sensors, you can hook into it and your community uh, can also be part of this experiment. So in Lincoln, what we were looking at um, was more around flooding, right? So Lincoln's very flat. We've got a lot of water that comes through the watershed uh, during certain times of the year. And how do you model where that water is infiltrating the underground uh, stormwater and wastewater pipes? Well, right now, the current state of technology is between twenty and $40,000 per location 
you can install flow monitoring sensors. That includes power, fiber connection, or a copper connection. Um, and what we wanted to do actually was work with the university to develop a low-cost, uh, battery-powered sensor that we could deploy throughout the, si the system and then surface rainwater sensors. And so when a rain event happens, we could actually model across the city where uh, rainwater was hitting the ground, how long it was taking to enter the system, where was it entering the system, and use that to create a new maintenance uh, model that allowed us to very specifically target for replacement of uh, stormwater and wastewater lines. Nobody's doing this right now. Uh, it's very difficult to do it because the current state of the situation, uh, the industry is very expensive for these sensors. Well, if you can do that and connect into the traffic network, all the main trunk lines go into the arterial streets where we'll have these uh, wireless antennas and things like that. So it's very interesting to, to look at the, the future of smart cities around sensors and modeling for how the city spends its money and where, where should they spend money uh, for repair of infrastructure. Yes, and I think people may not appreciate how much of a cost there is around these things and, and how much if you're able to if you're able to preemptively stop massive flooding oh. <laughs> the amount of 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 just value you can create is well, remarkable just, it's, it's amazing to me how much we have yet to learn about the infrastructure we have right so a lot of cities percentage of cities were built starting in the 1800s that infrastructure is still there and, and it's being replaced slowly over time. But what kind of materials should we be using? What's the model that we should be using? Where should we be spending our money to get the most bang for the buck? It's underground pipe. It's not the most sexy thing to talk about, but it's very expensive. And when it's somebody digging up that underground pipe in your backyard, you would like that to not happen again anytime soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, it is, it is uh, some of the, the least sexy but most interesting stuff that I get to work on. So have you have you actually looked into the what they're doing in Chicago in terms of trying to capture all the rainwater with this massive hold like cistern they're building underground? I have not seen that. Uh, I was working with the array of things, not working with them, listening mm -hmm. and talking kind of in preliminary conversations with them about you know if we brought this sensor online, how would we work with mm -hmm. them, um, and how could we partner with the university to deploy it on some of the university mm -hmm. grounds first. Those kind of things. I think, I, I don't remember the exact numbers. Henry Grabar, or Grabar, I don't know. The, he writes for Slate. He's a urban columnist type, he's an urban okay. planner type. And he talked about, I mean, they must be spending billions. I don't remember. It's tens of billions of dollars. But this is massive. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's an unbelievably large holding tank under Chicago to make sure that in the event of massive rain, they're not discharging sewage into the Great Lakes or the river. <laughs> and... Um, and, and what's interesting is other cities are trying to figure out how, instead of capturing all this, trying to slow it. And I think the challenge is, is that nobody can properly model how you would slow it enough to do a good enough job to prevent the system from being overwhelmed. But with these kinds of sensors, then, you can imagine doing that. Yes, and that's the idea. So Lincoln's very fortunate. It does not have what's known as a combined sewer and stormwater system. Uh, many of the older communities, specifically communities that are on a river, uh, St. Louis, Kansas City, Omaha, Chicago, they have combined storm and sewer systems. And that's the problem. So when you have a rain event, it's too much water for the treatment plant to handle. 
and that's when you get a discharge event. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're building these storage tanks. They're looking at alternative green infrastructure around diverting stormwater away from these combined systems because to replace a combined system, I mean, it's it's a lifetime of work, first of all, just the, the construction, engineering, and building of it. It's, right. Uh, so. Yeah, The um, I mean, the EPA, I think, has consent decrees with that lay all this stuff out. It's yes. very complicated. It'd be wonderful if we could just avoid that whole bureaucracy. <laughs> and a lot of it, you know, I mean, we have some rain barrels in our yard. It's not hard, you know, like to try and do your part. It's not. And, and, but you need to have a plan. Yes. And, and so it is. It's interesting. So. Well, thank you, David. It's been uh, another fun uh, conversation, and I appreciate you taking some time. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to you, Chris. Absolutely. That was David Young, one of the key people instrumental in bringing fiber to the home to Lincoln, Nebraska. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to episode 364 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.